Welcome to the OME Talks podcast. I'm your host, David Petro. This episode is the third of three preview episodes for the upcoming OME 2023 conference at the end of April. In the first two episodes, we met our day one and day two featured and keynote speakers where they told us about their featured and keynote and breakout sessions. Today, we're going to hear from them all one more time as they talk about one more thing. I want you to think back to when you were a student. Is there something that you do now as a teacher that you learned from one of your teachers or the flip side, something that you absolutely don't do because of something your teachers did? Well, we asked our featured and keynote speakers that question, and we're going to start by hearing from a couple of them talking about something they absolutely don't do. And we're going to begin with Octavia Beckles. So I had to think deeply about my experiences with mathematics in school, because for the most part, I didn't really remember them. I went to school during a time of what I would call or what I call the shadow of segregation a time when segregated schools were no longer occurring in Ontario, but the mindset of educators, of other students and their families had not changed or desegregated. So my memories of school are not about academic content and learning experiences, but the racism that I had to endure. So why this matters is because one of the memories that I do have regarding math learning is Mad Minute the rote memorization and regurgitation of multiplication facts. While I did not struggle in math or with my multiplication facts, I remember taking this very seriously, being nervous, and the additional pressure I imposed on myself, the necessity to be a top performer, because for me, in my context, this was a way for me to tap into the power structure around me that was unattainable. If I could use this social construction of smartness connected to power and be valorized within the classroom by the teacher, then this might somehow reduce the racism or harm that I was being immersed in on a daily basis. So if you can play the game, then you are playing to either maintain status or to access status and the corresponding power that it holds as a means of social inclusion or survival. If you struggle to play the game, then your status and power might be compromised, which results in fear and shutting down. Neither circumstance leads to a healthy or positive math learning space. So as an educator, mad minutes or any type of timed individualistic competition is not something that I used or subjected students to. And I'm also glad that we have come to a place in education where we no longer validate mad minutes as good practice or pedagogy. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Okay, so uh, first of all, I don't remember a lot of what happened in math class when I was in high school. And I think maybe the nature of it is that I, I the things I do remember are probably not the best memories. So I'm sure a lot of great things happened when I was in high school. I know I learned, I'm sure, a lot of math, and it just kind of gets absorbed into the background noise at this point. However, I do have one particular memory that stands out. And I remember I was in grade 10 math and we got a homework assignment and we were asked to graph uh, a series of linear equations. Uh, I'm pretty sure they were linear and I'm pretty sure I was in grade 10. So I don't really understand why that happened in grade 10. But anyway, but I guess that's the way it was back in 1985 or something. And so we were given a bunch of equations in slope intercept form and we were asked to graph them. It was a pretty rote exercise. And I was generally not inspired to do homework, but this day I decided to do homework. And 
what I did is I wrote some code, and the code took the, the parameters of the equation, the, the slope and the y-intercept, and it generated a graph. And then I printed them and took the homework to school with me the next day. And it was one of the days when the teacher did check homework. And uh, I showed him that I had done the homework, which was pretty remarkable for me, actually. And he was trying to figure out what on earth had happened. It wasn't what he expected. And then he said, well, did you use some kind of program for this? And I said, yeah. And I showed him the code because I printed that out too. And uh, I don't remember what he said. I just remember him walking away. Like he didn't, he didn't really say much to me. So I, I'm going to put this in the category. I, uh, I'm not sure whether this goes in the category of things that I would not do or would do as a teacher, but I'm going to think of it from the perspective of, of what is similar about that experience to what I would do now. And that is to take a problem that would normally be done one way traditionally and think about other ways that I could look at it and still demonstrate understanding or still allow my students to demonstrate understanding. And of course, we're still leveraging technology and hey, now we even have coding in the math curriculum. So there's a lot of sort of foreshadowing of uh, things that, that, that describe the way that I like to think about math and the way that I like my students to think about math and the, the kinds of tools that we like to use. So uh, that's the story I remember from my high school days. There's certainly some things that you know, I would have liked to have seen the teacher perhaps do differently. And I know I would have liked to, to have seen me doing more of my homework uh, than, than just on maybe that day. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of, of sort of foreshadowing and of, of the kinds of things that I do like to see and do now that I'm a teacher. That was Octavia Beckles letting us know what she wouldn't do that her teachers did and Anthony Melly, who was able to take something his teacher did and turn it around into something that he now does. The next few speakers gave us something that they would do and something that they wouldn't. And we'll start with Deborah Ball. I think, you know, there are really more things I experienced learning math that I don't do than that I do do. But I think this is related to the dichotomy challenge that I want to put before us, that it can't always be we're throwing out one thing and then doing something entirely different. I don't think it's quite as simple as that. But some of the things I remember that I know that I don't do as a teacher include emphasizing speed in math classes. In fact, mathematics isn't something that people do quickly. So of course, there are some things one needs to be able to estimate and think about quickly, but mathematics in the main isn't something one does fast. And the way in which speed dominated my mathematics learning, especially in elementary school, isn't something that I try to reproduce. I try to think carefully about which things does it matter to be fluent about and be really thoughtful about the remaining things that aren't really about speed at all. Another thing that was very prominent in my own learning was that math you know, math that we did was highly individualized, meaning independent, not necessarily that we all did different work, but we were working on our own and told basically not to talk to one another. Cheating was thought to be something one did if one worked with other people. And then papers would be returned to us with check marks on them of what was wrong. None of those is something that I've done as a teacher. Mathematics is actually an area in which collaboration is highly beneficial for student learning. If one wants to understand a math problem or a math concept, you can do you can build much stronger and more resilient understanding by having students work together with the guidance of the teacher on ideas that help to precipitate core understandings and emphasizing getting mistakes is one of the really problematic aspects of how math has been interpreted in school i would say two-thirds of the time when students make mistakes if one takes the time to understand what they're doing 
one finds that one of four things has happened. Either they've been mistaught something by the way their curriculum represents something without realizing how students might interpret it. Often they're answering a question different than the one we think that we've posed or that the textbook poses. And so their answer is completely right if you understand how they, what they thought the question was. Sometimes they're making simple little, what I would call bookkeeping errors, where they've made a small calculational mistake and it throws off the whole thing. But then to act as though they don't understand major content is a real misunderstanding of what they've been doing. And the final thing is sometimes they just make mistakes, but that's only a small fraction of the cases. And the emphasis that was placed on you know, percentage correct and all the errors, and then being told just to fix the errors is not something I do anymore. I think some of the things that I do remember experiencing that I still try to do is that I did have some experiences in math in which my ways of thinking were valued by my teachers. And I was encouraged that although I sometimes thought about problems differently than some of my classmates or in the way the teacher did, the teacher would demonstrate significant interest in my thinking. And through that, I was able to make connections and to see myself both as competent or more competent than I thought I was, which I definitely did not think I was particularly competent in math. And also to learn content by being able to bridge between how I was thinking and what else there was to know. And that is something I strive to do. But I would say I had not had many teachers who did that, but I did have some and that mattered a lot. So really the primary positive experiences I had were teachers who cared enough to understand what we thought and used that to help connect us to mathematical ideas we didn't yet understand using things we may have already understood. So I like to focus on the positive and I like to think about, you know, some of the fun things that I can remember that my teachers did. One that sticks out to me was when they created a classroom atmosphere on which we got to choose jobs and we were paid a salary and we got to learn about budgeting and financial concepts within our math. And that stuck out to me. I, I really believe because it was real world based and that it had to do with money and finances. I thought that was a real fun way to teach those basic mathematical skills, but in a way that was engaging. And then, of course, the thing that I wouldn't want to do are the time tests. I really feel like there's other ways to teach fluency that can go beyond time tests because I don't want my students to feel that anxiety and nervousness that I felt as a child. I think, similar to Anthony, I some of it's like a haze, but there's a couple things. There's a couple things that I remember that I'll share. I think one that was positive that I remember and I try to, I tr you know, the principles of it I, I, I do. And then another sort of like a general vibe that I got that I definitely would not do. So I'll start with the positive. I remember in uh, this was OAC. Oh boy. Algebra geometry. I think that was probably it. And my teacher really was zeroing in on vectors. And back in, back in the day, even in 2003, there really wasn't any technology or at least anything that was really accessible that everybody had that you can use to visualize something. And so I remember something I was like, what is he doing right now? He was grabbing three meter sticks and he was trying in one hand to hold them so that one would hold, one would go straight up, one would go right to me and one would go perpendicular, right? To make the X, Y, Z axis. And eventually uh, he got them all together 
And then he was showing these different, like what three dimensions and, and what these scales would look like to me. And I remember I was like, oh, that was really helpful that he went that way to to show me in real space and using these the using these meter sticks to really point to me like like what like the directionality of of vectors and i remember like from there uh i i didn't know at the time that i wanted to be a teacher but thinking and reflecting on that kind of aha moment that explaining you know he was explaining things verbally but then also showing things visually and so having like multiple modes to demonstrate or to show what a concept is is something that i i try to do when i'm teaching or when i'm working with staff is that you got to go and and not not everybody or sorry i would say that you know that idea of like you're a visual learner or you're an auditory learner like we know that that's not true like there's people people learn when there's multiple ways uh, of of getting at information so that was something that was really positive that i try to continue to do like in 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 my work but one that i remember like this kind of like in, in another uh, oac class i remember the the vibe in the classroom was really tense and i remember it's because the teacher was a bit of a a tyrant and a bit of a bully to be honest and it wasn't it wasn't fun to be in that class and in addition to that it was also a lot of procedural stuff and so i remember i i i didn't have the greatest experience in 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 that class even though i did fine but then also i thought that i was learning because i knew how to do these procedures but then when i then went to university and i started taking math classes it, I, it was such a struggle for me there because I, I thought I knew the math, but I didn't really. Like I knew how to procedurally do it. And and at that point, that was valued as knowing math. And so now when we go and, and work with teachers and, and getting to work with students, that focus on conceptual understanding is so important because you might know how to do the math, but when you have to think outside and you have to be malleable with the 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 procedures and stuff like that like you really need to know the ins and outs and be really fluent in your understanding in order to really get to the next level and so i you know i did fine in university math but boy it was it was like a a rude awakening when i went and i thought i knew math but i i didn't really know it as much as i thought so those are two things i i keep with me whenever I, uh, whenever I teach and whenever I work with, uh, work with teachers too. That was Deborah Ball, Lindsay Gold, and Jason Toe giving us examples of something from their childhood teachers that they would do and some things that they wouldn't do. To finish off, we're going to hear our last group talk about what they saw when they were students that they use in their practice today. And we'll start with Chantelle Clark. So one thing that I have to say is just greeting students in the morning. I think that's something that my teachers did for me and made me feel welcome. And that's something that I did as a teacher. And I certainly um, see it as a really important piece to start off the day right as a vice principal. So that's something that I think is just, you know, it doesn't it doesn't go bad. It doesn't go stale. Greeting someone with a warm smile and saying that you're happy to see them and, and welcoming students into the building, I think, is really important to create that sense of community. 
I remember my grade six math teacher, Mrs. Weston, that was many decades ago, would play her guitar when she would teach math. She would do it around counting and numbers, but also engaged us in thinking about patterning. And it's always struck me how profound that was on me because it made me think of math in different ways outside of numbers. Because, you know, I had a teacher in grade three who would do flashcards and we have to memorize these like addition and subtraction and multiplication. So that terrified me around math. And then uh, Mrs. Weston with her guitar, it really, I really remember this because it was just so joyful and how that impacted me as a classroom teacher when I was in the classroom because I taught elementary and then I, I did coaching with math is thinking about the joy of math, inviting students to tell their stories of how they like or dislike math, how they engage or dislike and bringing joy in it. So connecting to the land, connecting to community, connecting to identities and thinking about how can I make the learning and engaging of math joyful. When I think about what I learned as a mathematics student, I, I actually go back to elementary school where I was in a program that really allowed us a lot of encouraged and, and kind of required us to use a lot of creativity. We were exposed to, you know, other base systems. We were doing logic problems. We were doing a lot of things that required us to kind of act as if whatever rules we've previously been given we're supposed to break or we're supposed to think outside of the box. And so we're not supposed to kind of conform to whatever maybe other people would be thinking of doing. And so, and I loved that. I loved being able to play in other bases. I remember being a, a young child and going up to my mother and saying, can I have this many cookies? And I would write one, one on the page, you know, which looked like 11. Can I have 11 cookies? And my mom would just look at me like, no, you can't have 11 cookies. And I said, well, how about in base two? And I just, you know, I thought these kinds of things were like so funny that that you could play with these with these ways of thinking and, you know, that, that I was kind of violating a base 10 system in that way. And so I think when I think of the work that I do with teachers, when I think about even the work I do with mathematicians, I think I invite us to think about breaking rules, to think about maybe not starting with the same assumptions or the same axioms all the time. And what would that look like? to do that what where could where could our work go if we didn't assume you know we were working in a base 10 system or if we didn't assume we were working in a two dimensional space and we were actually on a curved space which is kind of how we got you know non euclidean geometries so that, i think that's one of the things that i really value about what i valued as a learner and what i continue to what encourages me to continue to be a learner is to invite people into those spaces of not assuming that everything that has come before or has been told to us as this is the way you do things that that should always be the way you do things i remember one secondary math class where for me it was just incredible it was such a transformative experience for me, where math did not live solely on the board and in textbooks. It was discussed, it was explored. It was the first time where I felt I could have my own ideas, that they were valued. I felt empowered to take risks and share ideas and share ideas that weren't fully developed, which was a real risk. Like I'm thinking about and not sure if they were correct, but just feeling you know, confident to do that. And, and I remember being in that class and I remember, you know, as students, like that was huge for us. 
And that particular teacher shared warmth, humor, humility. Like she had the content, but she was humble and she learned alongside with us. And I think that really had an impact on me as a student. You know, how I felt about math, how I saw myself as a math learner was different from other classrooms. I could share my own math story. And I think that was really critical. And for me, I think when I teach, I hope that I inspire the, the students that I teach at the university. I hope I model that, but I also hope that they, they think about that and I inspire them to infuse that in their own practice, that culture. That, and you can't, you know, it's not a concrete thing. It's how you create that collaborative classroom where the students feel safe and taking risks. So I had an amazing math teacher in high school. Her name was Amelia Beltry. And she was always very excellent at listening to student thinking and trying to record their thinking using appropriate, mathematically accurate scribing techniques at the board. And also, even quite often, she would get the OHP. So for the millennials out there, that stands for overhead projector, which is kind of like a document camera. You know, if you consider a pager kind of like a cell phone. Anyway, Amelia used to write like the student thinking and she would question students as they explain their method, just like I like to do today, to add more clarity. So if a student was a little bit vague, she would slow down the explanation for the rest of us to and try to get them to explain that process. For example, you know, she might like, where did that three come from? You know, well, you said three, but where did it come from? And she would really slow it down and, and try to help us be able to follow the strategy and make it visible for the rest of us. And one of the things that I noticed about Amelia that I noticed later on, because I actually had the chance to work with her again as a colleague at Lakehead University, that I remembered her doing as a teacher, which is the act or the persona of what I call the perplexed teacher. So like, you know, pretending that you really didn't understand where something was and really getting people to try to help you see what you don't see. And I remember actually one time sitting in on a lecture of hers as a adult coming back and sitting in on her classes as she taught teacher candidates. And I had a teacher candidate ask me after class if she really didn't understand something uh, that they were sharing in class. And I couldn't decide if I could tell, should tell this person that she had a master's in math or if I just left them wondering. What really impacted me as a student was when there were questions that were posed in the classroom that didn't have answers attached to them immediately. So it might have been a problem of the week or just a question that came up and hung around. And something that we could go home and think about and just the sense that not all questions popped up and were immediately answered by the authority or by the teacher and then they were done, but that they were just kind of around and you had to return to them over and over again. That's something that when I think about my experience in elementary school, what I actually remember are those experiences when I was kind of mulling over a question that had come up somewhere and and I can still remember some of these questions. I remember a, a problem of the week that went home in fifth grade was how do you plant 10 trees so that they form 
five lines with four trees in each line. And it seemed impossible, but I remember just puzzling over it for hours. And that kind of experience, uh, I just find so valuable, I guess. And certainly in my own teaching, I feel like questions are just so central. One of my favorite mathematicians, George Cantor, has this great line, which is that in mathematics, questions are more important than answers. And the value of asking good questions, of encouraging students to ask their own questions, and of just having the classroom be a place where questions can come up, can be introduced, and hang around for a little while and not be resolved right away necessarily, depending on what kind of questions they are, but can become our fuel for curiosity and for just kind of grappling with what's mysterious in mathematics and what's fascinating about it. Uh, that's something that has definitely stuck with me and which is central to the work I do now. So in high school, my favorite math teacher was Mr. Peter Muck. He was my absolute favorite because we coexisted peacefully during math class. So what did this look like? His board work was impeccable. He was well organized, had the date, the title, the homework always outlined. So for someone like me who would rush through all of the practice questions so that I could get to my most riveting novel of, of the moment, that was very helpful. And he he knew that's how I worked and he allowed it and wasn't bothered by it. He would also allocate board space for students to present solutions to homework questions and organize work samples. He made space for all of us, really. And what did this sound like? There were very structured times of the class where there was conversation and there was a healthy buzz around the room. But mostly he was able to maintain a quiet space to learn and practice and work with others and ask for help which was very much appreciated for some of us who had part-time jobs after school and didn't have the time to get through math homework in the evening. So we really appreciated having time to work in class, ask for help and be supported. What this mostly felt like was just that there was a healthy level of trust between him and his students. We knew that he was concerned, cared, about us and was just available to us. And he knew in turn that we would work well for him, work hard for him, and really do, do, our, do our best to, to create a caring, safe, and productive classroom community. So I enjoyed the content. I, I enjoyed the way he taught, his personality, the relationships he created between students and with each of us. And as a teacher of mathematics, and now someone who supports students on various mathematical pathways, I'm still striving to understand what each student enjoys about learning mathematics, how they access new learning, and sort of what drives their behaviors in math classes, so that I too can create and support identity-affirming experiences for children who are mathematical beings. I think back and I had a variety of teachers who behaved differently and I appreciated different things they did. But I think my strongest memories are about teachers who 
I'm going to say gave kids credit for coming up with interesting ideas. So it wasn't so much that you were praised because you gave them um, what they wanted to hear. You got praised because you thought differently than they did. And that's resonated with me my entire career. And I, I'm well aware that when I'm working with kids, I'm happy if they do something conventional, but I'm I'm also very happy and give them lots of positive feedback for thinking in their own unique ways. And I think that's a big part of what empowerment really is. That was Chantel Clark, Robert DeRoche, Rochelle Gutierrez, Kathy Marks Kirpan, Heather Wark, Dan Finkel, Hema Kodai, and Marion Small finishing off talking about empowerment, the conference theme. Of course, that's the OME 2023 conference happening in April 27th and 28th. Full registration is currently open and can be done at our MCIS registration site. Of course, the link is in the description. More information can be found at oime2023.ca. So that's it. Over the last three episodes, we've heard from our featured and keynote speakers, and you can hear them along with over 200 other sessions if you come to Toronto in April. So we'll see you there. And in the meantime, stay safe.